0: If you would, please take your copy of God's word and turn to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 36. We're going to read all of chapter 36, the first seven verses of chapter uh, 37 this morning. It seems to flow together there. And um, we have come to a section where the prophecy of Isaiah has given way to historical narrative. So. Um, some would say, ah, oh, obviously, Isaiah didn't write all of this, this diverse corpus of literature here. Uh, then again, uh, as you read Isaiah, you'll see the, the um, uh, it's obvious, a man of learning was the one who composed many of these rich passages. So uh, you get different genres within the same book, in part because chapters 36 through 39 serves as a bridge from the first half of Isaiah for the second half of Isaiah, from the uh, judgment that characterizes most of chapters 1 through 35 uh, to the comfort that characterizes most of chapter 40 and beyond. Uh, Without further ado, let's look now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow it in the bulletin. Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you were trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you were able on your part to set riders on them, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshaka, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who were on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards beware lest hezekiah mislead you by saying the lord will deliver us Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of assyria where are the gods of hamath and arpad where are the gods of Sepharvaim? have they delivered samaria out of my hand who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the lord should deliver jerusalem out of my hand but they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and told him the words of the rab Shaka. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, And the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day, excuse me, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word together. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, we come to you on a cold morning seeking warmth. We come to you on a cloudy morning seeking light. Seeking truth. We pray that you would shine into our hearts, that you would help us to behold wondrous things in your law. This we ask, not because we deserve it, but because we pray to a good and gracious God, and it's in Jesus' name we ask it all. Amen. Isaiah 36 is a rude awakening back to reality, back to the enemy at the gates. No more behold your God, no more highways to heaven, no more singing and joy, just brutal reality. Oh yes, Isaiah 35, it's still true. God will still come with his recompense one day, but today it's a bit darker. Can Isaiah 35 and the promise of paradise, can all that sustain us when an army is threatening to starve us out and make us drink our own bodily fluids? I know it's gross, it's in the Bible, my defense. Even if it 's rated p g thirteen, but isn 't this what life is like sometimes? Moments of hope doused by reality i 'll never forget the hope I felt a few weeks after nine eleven i 'll never forget the day that hope was extinguished you know it at some point we weren 't focused on first responders at ground zero, or young men who enlisted in the military immediately afterwards, or the fact that our president threw a strike during the ceremonial first pitch in Yankee Stadium at the World Series just a few months later. It was a thing, it was good. No, instead of all that, we were focused on who was gonna pay the overtime. We were focused on whatever the latest political fight was. We were back to reality. Isn't this what the last few years have been like? Every time you think, maybe, just maybe, we can emerge from this pandemic and all the carnage that it has caused, and and, and maybe this world will be a better place, And, and maybe autocratic leaders, especially the ones who like to show off their martial arts skills and ride horses while shirtless, will stop invading other countries just because they can. Maybe, or maybe not. Can the promises of Isaiah 35 sustain us when reality comes knocking at our door? Or maybe we should ask, can you still trust those promises? One commentator says that this chapter asks us, on whom are you depending? It's basically a quote from verse five of 36. Isaiah forces to ponder that question again and again and with good reason for our response to it will determine the whole shape of our lives. Who will you trust when your faith in God is under siege? Can you still trust God when all around your soul gives way, when the enemies are at the gate? That's what King Hezekiah and Isaiah's friends had to ask themselves. We see that unfold this morning in three scenes. The first one is the longest, you've been forewarned. First, we see the doubt that the enemy sows the doubt that the enemy sows, chapter 36, 1 through 20. Again, we've transitioned from prophecy in Isaiah 1 to 35, we've transitioned to history. This same history with minor additions and subtractions can also be seen in Second Kings 18 through 20, but Isaiah inserts it here for theological reasons. Who will we trust when faith is under siege? You have to ponder that before you can appreciate the good news that comes in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people. But chapter 36, verse 1, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Hezekiah's first 14 years were pretty good. Hezekiah was a good king. In August, one of our elders used Hezekiah as a case study of leadership, 20 principles of leadership, most of them positive. Year 14 was a doozy. Sennacherib plowed through Israel's fortified cities until he came to Lachish, 30 miles away from Jerusalem. The last line of defense says in verse 20, and the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. There's really complex geographic architectural explanations of what that was, the conduit of the upper pool, all that jazz, it's interesting. But it's also the exact same place where Isaiah met King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter seven. Another king of Judah, fearing an Assyrian invasion, examining the weak point of his defenses. Back in Isaiah seven, the prophet told the king two things. He said, a remnant shall return and he also said, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. What's different now? Well, the king's servants are the ones who are there, according to verse 3. And the enemy speaks to them, not the prophet, the enemy, the Rabshakeh. Syrian army commander, sometimes called the field commander. It's probably what the title means. And the Rabshakeh is giving in Israel. Plenty of reasons to fear. Plenty of reasons to doubt whether their God will deliver. And that's what we should think about as we read this. What is he saying about Israel's God? About your God? Verses four and five And the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. How do you think God's people felt about that one? How do you think God felt about that one? On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me?" Yes, Judah was defying their, their overlord, withholding taxes, other things. Hezekiah had encouraged the people to trust God's deliverance, it seems, verse 15 and 18. But their faith was being tested. Doubts were being sown by this Rabshaka. Who could Israel trust? Who had they trusted in the past? Verse six, "'Behold, you were trusting in Egypt, That broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Moitir says, reliance on Egypt is a no-hope position. Sorry, Egypt. Hezekiah had resisted this temptation, but the temptation had not gone away. It was still there. That was always the perpetual thing. Let's just go to Egypt, ask them for help. What other options did they have? Verse 7. But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar. Uh, fact check, false. Hezekiah had torn down pagan altars to false gods, places of syncretism at best, outright idolatry at worst. Also false, even if they had been legitimate houses of worship to the true God. God's power would not have been reduced because they had been torn down. But you know, it might be hard to think about all that and respond to all that when the Shaka keeps verbally assaulting you. Notice what he does in verses eight and nine. Hey, how about I give you 2,000 horses? You still won't be able to find men to ride them. You still won't be able to defeat the weakest man in my army. It's true enough to sow even More doubt, and he's not done yet. Verse 10, moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. You might remember Isaiah 10. Isaiah had proclaimed that Assyria was the rod of God's anger against God's people. You know, maybe Assyria had been spying on Isaiah's preaching since he was also a royal friend and counselor to the king. He was, he was Billy Graham before Billy Graham. his friend of presidents and kings. These four assaults, verbal assaults for God's people to fend off. By the time they thought of a comeback, to even one of these things that had been said, he was coming with another, even if some of them were false. So, so they, they do the only thing they can do, they say stop, basically, verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, or Hebrew, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Speak Aramaic, the language of international diplomacy then. Why? So that these common Hebrews, the ones sitting on the wall, won't understand it. They don't want to induce panic in their people. They're scared, they don't want the people to be scared. The Rab Shaka d- declines, not so politely, the Rabshakeh said, as my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. They have a right to hear this. One commentator calls this megaphone diplomacy. This graphic language, it's what men and women were tempted to do when the enemy laid siege to their city, surrounding them, daring them to come out and fight because if they didn't, then they would starve or they'd have to resort to the unthinkable. And the rabshaker keeps going. He uses diplomacy, you might say, in verses 13 to 15. Yeah, it might be better for you not to trust your godly king who says God will deliver you just surrender just save yourselves then he shifts to a sort of a humanitarian plea in verses 16 and 17 make your peace with me and come out to me then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until i come and take you away to a land like your own land land of grain and wine etc etc Even an eight-year-old can spot that lie, I know because I performed that test earlier this week, as if exile is really going to be all fairy tales and roses, a land of milk and honey and figs and other good things. But you see, that's not the moment when he went too far. Oh, that comes in verses 18 through 20. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among, the gods of, uh, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. He has just compared Yahweh, the covenant Lord, that's his Lord in small capitals in your English Bibles. He's compared the great I Am, who promised to be all that his people needed him to be. He is comparing him to all the other gods, the false gods, the little G gods. How will capital G God answer that? We'll hold that thought because for now, the other question is, how God's people should respond to a speech like this. Because what is this speech? Paraphrasing, quoting another, it is truth mixed with error, it's a few unanswerable facts about Egypt, it's ridicule, threats, cajolery, I love that word, perverted theology that de-godifies God with a few allusions to Isaiah's sermons for good measure. As someone says, this speech is a classic study in the satanic art of sowing doubt and unbelief through subtly twisting the truth. This speech is so persuasive precisely because it contains so much that is true. And it is always Satan's way to make us think that God has abandoned us and to use logic woven from half-truths to convince us of it. It is always Satan's way to make us think that God has abandoned us. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like any of your internal monologues? that God has abandoned us. No, I'm not saying that we should all start going around saying the devil made me do it as an excuse for all of our sins to abandon our responsibility to fight sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that. I am saying we need to be more ready to see Satan's handiwork and his schemes in the midst of all of our frustrations, fears, angers, selfishness. Do you think that God cannot help you out of whatever predicament you're in right now? Have you listened to the enemy's barrage, doubt sowing? Do you think that you're in a spiritual dead end? There's just no way out. What do you think God would say if you told him that? Would he agree? And before you worry about how mad you think he might be, oh, I can't admit that I had these doubts. If you're thinking that, don't forget Isaiah 30. He longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show compassion to you. Years ago, I read this, when Satan tempts us to sin, he always says, you can get away with it. And once we have sinned, he says, you'll never get away with it. All of the doubts that the rabshakeh sows are really nothing compared to this, the doubt he sows about our God. The message that says God has abandoned you, so you should not hope in him anymore. Isn't that the root of all false teaching? almost all of it what do you do when you see when you hear the doubt that the enemy sows you realize it for what it is it's ultimately God's enemies sowing doubts about God's ability to save it is God's enemies attacking God and then you have to ask yourself this is God gonna take that lying down maybe hard to respond to this type of attack. But praise God, our salvation does not depend on the strength of our faith. After the doubt the enemy sows, we also see, secondly, the faith that dares to trust. The faith that dares to trust. You see this, um, the end of one chapter, the beginning of another. You could also call this the faith that barely hangs on. Look with me at verse 21, chapter 6, uh, 21. But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Is this cowardice, or is this faith that God can answer better than they can? Verse 22, it says these messengers, they go to the king, their clothes are torn. The king hears this, he responds, chapter 37, verse 1, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord, physical signs of fasting and prayer, and notice he goes to the house of prayer as well, and then he sends his servants, also wearing sackcloth, he sends them to Isaiah with with a message that is also a prayer, also a confession, verse 3, they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace, children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. Moitir summarizes this prayer like this. Now there's repentance and confession, the end of human strength. Distress expresses the fact of adversity. Rebuke its nature as merited or deserved trouble. Disgrace the scorn attached. And children, et cetera, expresses the disappointment of hopes. The fun parts of my job is I get to read stuff like that, that deep, that insightful, and then get to come and tell you about it. What do you see here? Hezekiah doesn't dare to tell God what Hezekiah thinks that Hezekiah deserves. God, how, how could you let this happen to me? How could you let this happen to us? Do, do, we, do we deserve this? No, you see, he knows they deserve this. He knows they deserve worse. No, what he does is he pleads on behalf of God's people. They're your people. He pleads on behalf of their dire circumstances, dire straits. He pleads based upon the character and kindness of God, that God will not want to forsake his people who are called by his name. See, the hard part of all this is the half of the half-truths that are true, right? You see, Assyria was the rod of God's anger against God's rebellious people, true, true us Israel had sinned badly look at Isaiah 1 through 5 or anywhere else in Isaiah And you know even if we are better we ain't that much better we know that we deserve God's discipline at the very least we know that we are always worse than what we get from God we deserve worse than what we get from God Psalm 103 says so of course That's putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, the wrong half of the half truth. Because if you know your God, and if you know him better than the enemy's distortion of your God, then you also know though our sins are many, what do we sing? His mercy is more. Also from Psalm 103 verse eight, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. In abounding and steadfast love, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion. To those who fear him. When you know your God like this, then you can dare to trust him, even as you confess your sins to him. <clears throat> notice after the confession in verse three, notice how Hezekiah prays. Verse four, he continues, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh whom his master, the king of Assyria has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer." He's speaking to Isaiah the prophet. Lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. You may not think words like maybe or it may be are signs of faith, but they are. A faith that's barely holding on, a faith that dares to trust. Ralph Davis once referred to this as the imagination of faith. He's talking about the situation where Jonathan, King Saul's son, took on a whole garrison of Philistines, saying, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It may be, this kind of faith, Davis says, arises in such a situation because it looks not to circumstances but to God. Clear conviction about God produces great expectations of God and also recognizes his normal manner of working this faith yes it's daring at the same time it's not arrogant that's what you get from it may be Jonathan's it may be is part of his faith he both confesses the power of the Lord and retains the freedom of the Lord faith does not dictate to God as if the Lord of hosts is its errand boy isn't that what you see in Hezekiah Hezekiah doesn't dare to speak about what God has kept secret. He doesn't know what's going to happen. There is a mystery about exactly what God will do in this circumstance, about the secret things that belong only to the Lord. But at the same time, he knows it is not crazy. It is faith to think that God might rebuke the blasphemy of the Rabshakeh and his king, especially for the sake of God's beleaguered and weary remnant who are trusting in him. Also reminds me of something Joab once said. Joab, David's army commander, captain. Back in 2 Samuel 10, verse 12, Joab was not a man that was known for his faith. He was a battle-hardened warrior, but at one glimmering moment he says, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may our Lord do what seems good to him. You might say, Joab dared to believe that what the Lord thought was good would also be good for his people. Hezekiah is in dire straits, isn't he? He's outnumbered. Some of these horrible things that the rabshakeh said, some of them are true. But Hezekiah and others dared to trust, dared to trust that God had not abandoned his remnant Dare to trust that God had not abandoned those who trusted in him and that God could still save these downtrodden, undeserving people that are called by his name. Is that the God you know? Even when your faith is barely holding on. Because you see, if you focus on the strength of your God and not on the strength of your faith, maybe you will dare to trust like Hezekiah did. Maybe you'll dare to trust that God as well. Maybe. After the doubt the enemy sows and the faith that dares to trust, we also see this, thirdly and finally, the Savior that won't let go. The Savior that won't let go. You see it in verses 5 through 7. Hezekiah's servants ask Isaiah to pray as well. But notice Isaiah doesn't pray. Isaiah already prayed, (laughs) and Isaiah already has an answer. One person says, this is a simple belief that what the Lord once said, he meant. He meant. It's still true. God has already assured God's prophet and God's people that they can trust him during this threat. So what does Isaiah say? Verse six, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. That's what you'll see in the following verses. We'll cover it more next week, but God plays a divine game of telephone. This messenger says this to this person and says it to this person. And before you know it, Assyria is chasing her own tail, worried about an enemy that may or may not be a threat. So what do we make of all this? Hezekiah, Isaiah, they certainly stood, stood tall, stood firm, stood true, didn't they? Do we, do we conclude, as some commentators do, that this is Hezekiah's finest hour, despite any imperfections that are there? we conclude that it's Isaiah's finest hour, that all of Isaiah's training and prophecy and the disappointment he endured, that all of that prepared him for such a time as this. Well, I don't think we should skip over that. I don't think we should discount the heroism, the bravery, the strong faith that God's people and others have shown throughout history. We, we need inspiration in dark times. We need stories to inspire us I dare say we we need men like Ukraine's President Zelensky. I've been fascinated by this guy, not without his flaws. You know what he did before he was president, former comedian and actor, yet somehow he's defying an army 10 times stronger than his, responding to offers of evacuation with lines like, I don't need a ride, I need ammo. Who is this guy? What's gotten into him? I read a profile of him last weekend that said, this man might be dead by the time I post this story in six hours. But do not ignore this profiling courage. As far as I can tell, all that's still the case. We need inspiration in dark times. It all makes me think as well of a scene from Apollo 13, the movie. Even if this part isn't true, you know, it's based on a true story. What does based on a true story mean? That's a... Good topic for another day. Even if this part isn't true, I want it to be true. Apollo 13, of course, is the mission to the moon that never made it to the moon, that almost didn't make it home. And back in mission command in Houston, some of the NASA guys, they're worrying. As Aquarius is about to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, one guy says to another, I know what the problems are. This could be the worst disaster that NASA's ever experienced. And then Ed Harris who plays the steely-eyed, determined, indomitable flight director. He overhears it, turns his head, and he interjects, with all due respect, sir, I think it'll be our finest hour. Now, spoiler alert, they make it home. We need inspiration in dark times. But it's also worth asking, what kind of inspiration? Is it faith in men to do the right thing, the inspiring thing? How long will that last? Can we always count on men and women, good men and women around us? You see, the biggest point of Isaiah 36, 37 is not Hezekiah's faith. It's not Isaiah's faith, as great as it is. We shouldn't shouldn't seek refuge in them or in men like them, past or present. The biggest point is Whom Hezekiah has faith in. Whom Isaiah has faith in. At the end of the day, what does Isaiah say? He says, God will deliver us. God said so. God will not forsake his remnant. He will not let us go. And Jesus says the same thing to his weary people, his helpless sheep in every age. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The point of all this is not grit your teeth and get through it, have stronger faith. That's not it. The point is that when your faith is almost failing, your God remains as strong and true and trustworthy as He has always been. A thousand preachers have used the following illustration. It's because it's a good one, it's true. What matters more, the strength of your faith or the object of your faith, the thing, the one that you're trusting in? Think of it if you're standing on a frozen pond. I don't do that very often because I don't have very, very strong faith but if you're standing on a frozen pond, what matters more? The strength of your faith. I believe it'll hold. I believe the sound of that ice cracking is no big deal. The strength of your faith or the strength of the ice, the object that you're ultimately trusting in. If you're peeing your pants in fear, but the ice is thick and strong, you'll still be okay. You see, Satan wants you to think that your God is a thin layer of ice, that your God has abandoned you, but he's wrong. God will still save those who trust in him, and if you can see through the enemy's lies, then you will be able to rest secure. Our God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So when your faith is under siege, don't fear, don't let go because our God hasn't let go of us, and he won't let go. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you needing your grace, needing your truth, needing your strength to supplement all of our weakness. Father, be with us. Would you feed our faith in the moments ahead as we partake of your holy supper? Would you feed our faith By the power of your spirit, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.